1: So, so welcome Lisa to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself, please?
2: Sure. So, uh, I work in strategy execution. That's been my my whole background, and I mentor executives to accelerate their projects and their change. So, um, my clients love having that uh, sounding board for the you know, and to get some fresh ideas. That, that, that's what they um, they hire me for, and so they can fast track what they're doing. And I also have a membership as well, uh, turbocharge your Transformation, which I'm very excited about.
1: Yeah, that's great. And and I think that's the, I mean, we we overlap nicely there that I, I like to be the trusted advisor or fulfill the trusted advisor role too with customers where they can just come and talk and, uh, you know, you're South African, I'm South African, we're pretty plain speaking people. Um, so they know they're getting good feedback or or the feedback they don't only hear necessarily. Um, but it helps them to to cut through some of the bureaucracy or the red tape, or or change their thinking a little bit, or or challenge some of their thinking, which which I think they don't always get with with their directs. Um, exactly. So it'd, be, so it'd be interesting to hear more about how you've got to this position, maybe.
2: Sure. So I started in South Africa working for what was then Anderson Consulting. It's now Accenture. And I was basically sitting behind a, a green screen doing COBOL and a few other things and um, other kinds of um, coding. And uh, and then um, I kind of – I'm a very much a people's person, and I found a lot of the reason why the projects, the, the, the systems when we implemented them didn't stick was because of just the change in the people side. So I became really interested in that. And then to cut a long story short, I left and I went to the US and I um, was interviewing with a few firms and I got a job offer for McKinsey. And I thought, fantastic! I'm going to move here. I'm going to go and work. And you know, and, and I tried all sorts of different things because you 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 know you you don't need to specialize in a, like choose whether it's technology or change or it's just a whole lot of sort of strategic kind of projects. I love doing that. But again, the reason why a lot of the strategy worked didn't stick was the people so again long story short came to australia with a backpack and and basically stayed and uh and went to go work for a culture change organization and then in 1999 i started out on my own so
0: yeah wow. going on
2: really? yeah going on 24 years and i sort of put all that knowledge together so i've been doing um you know implementing. Uh, change programs, all sorts of transformation programs from a multidisciplinary perspective as a usually in the role of program director or program manager. And, uh, and and love doing that. And um, I've, I've had very high success rates with in, in, an, in an environment that where the, traditionally it's been, you know, the, there's been a lot of failure rates. And so, um, but it's taken me a long time to get to a point where I'm sort of confident enough to kind of go out there and really own it. And I think that's mm. what happens when you start getting older. You sort of just get to the point where, you, yep, I can, you know, I know I can do this. And so that's why I'm so excited well, two things. One is that I've start, sort of moved more and more into mentoring teams and, and executives to, to um, advise them on, on how to accelerate what they're doing, um, in you know, strategy, transformation, all of that. And then the other uh, part is that um, I've started a membership this year. So that's the Turbocharger Transformation membership. And the purpose of that is twofold. One is to, um, to teach people how to do all of this from from the lessons of what's been most successful and also to create a bit of a community and um, that kind of confidence that people have that there are other people that are doing this sort of innovating, innovative work. And it's pretty tiring and it's pretty hard and it's pretty lonely sometimes, especially when you're in a big corporate and um, you've got really prickly politics to deal with. And yeah. although there are people all around you, it can feel quite lonely. So it's quite nice to have a sounding board for that. And um, I've got a way where people can do it and still get a bit of confidentiality. Yeah. And yeah. Get, get some advice. So, yeah, so that's what I do.
1: Yeah. It's, and it's, it's funny you mentioned the, the, the politics, the prickly politics. I was just talking to someone about it yesterday. That the, you know, everyone thinks the higher you go you go in a role, the easier, the, the easier it gets. It actually gets more and more complicated. And and you've really got to – I, and I struggled with this when we moved to the UK because the people I spoke to didn't speak the same way that I spoke. They were not direct and blunt and solve the problem people. They would talk around it. They would – they would and I had to learn a hard lesson around how you had to have meetings before the meeting. Mm. And you had to lobby and you had to get to know people and you had to know all about where they were coming from and what their things were and all that stuff. And then you would be able to get um, – buy into to what you want to think. But it's, you know, it was a hard, it was a hard year and a half of of, you know, as a typical Springbok rugby player would run into people and and run them over. That didn't work in, in the political game. You had to you know, be a little bit more, you know, kiwi in the sense of, you know, a lot of fancy footwork. Um, but you know, in the end, you got to win the game somehow. And then the only way to win it was to to get people on board. Um, so, and and, then, and that's kind of where value came from to a large extent, was how did you, um, and value as a product, value as a framework, um, how did you get people aligned, what kind of, you know, how did you go about doing it without becoming imposing, but more consultative, more trust building, um, very clear on what the, the the reasons why we were doing something, so the, so the value of doing this thing, why was this thing the most important thing to be doing, what was the sequence to do it, all that kind of stuff. Um which you know led me to my sort of going on my own a year ago, just over a year ago, um, more formally. You know, I've always had sort of the consulting stuff that I've done, even when I was full time. You know, with, with full transparency to who I was employed by. Um, but this was much more formal in the sense of going into customers and saying, okay, well, you bought this product, you spent a million bucks on it, why? isn't why are you not seeing the value? Well, it's because your whole structure is wrong. Like you just you you're not geared up in the right ways you're still doing everything the way you did it before but now you're expecting the technology to solve your problem you've got to you've got to change gotcha. how you work and, yeah. and, all that kind of and and some of those conversations are are not um as i say not blunt conversations there are six eight ten twenty conversations over a period yeah. of time and you just got to constantly be feeding back and 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 guiding somebody
2: so that's exactly you, sorry go ahead
1: no, no that's a, that, yep. and, uh, I think that's where we overlap. I think we've probably yeah. done something very similar in just different, just different disciplines.
2: Yeah, so that's exactly the the thing because it's been quite it's quite hard for a lot of folks that are in the digital technology space that are yep. technical and have come from a technical background to. Um, to think from an integrated perspective, and so they miss the cues. And what you've just described, Ryan, it's quite interesting. Um, are you doing uh, the video as well for this? Because if so, I'm yep. happy to um, I'm happy to, to share a uh, a diagram if you like.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll do the video, and then also, if, we, if you don't mind, we just do a screenshot of or whatever you, you're sharing.
0: Of um, course.
1: The, the audio only. Of
2: course. So what you've described, Ryan, is um is thinking from a multidisciplinary perspective. And that is very unusual for folks that have come from one discipline. Um mm-hmm. because what they tend to do is they tend to think from one or two disciplines generally, I find. So People have come from um, a like the business kind of focused on a business outcome, like in your case, technology or being a subject matter expert on a project or being a product manager. They would all fit in the circle at the top, which is the business circle. Okay. Yeah. So thinking from a uh, specialized subject matter expertise perspective, thinking about the business outcome. OK. Yeah. Um, Folks who've got a technology background and many of those who listening, I understand, do, will will mostly have a project management background as well. That's the second green circle. Yeah. Um, what, what people also need to execute change is to be able to think about the change management and the people. That's the third circle. And folks who can think from that multidisciplinary perspective in the middle are the most powerful. And then I'll take it one step beyond because if you can then a, a, Adapt the approach in the organisation you're working in to the culture, to their culture in the workplace. Um, then it's it's those those people and the, working on those projects that will get that flywheel effect for ROI and innovation. Yeah, and that's I the model so. that I teach people. Um, it and the whole philosophy of turbocharged, Your Transformation is is based on that.
1: I, I love this. I love this diagram. Um, I think it's such a um so so for, for the value framework that, that we put together uh, over the years, we don't have this kind of image. We have a different one. Um and we don't call it I mean there's the similarities, but it's not the same thing. I've I've worried more around um strategy and, and execution uh, underpinned by people. Um and the strategy comes from business and change. Right. So, so it's just a, it's blocks, not not circles and all the rest of it. But it's with it with an arrow, you know, to the right. So very similar. So I, I, I mean, I think you've you've actually it's a much better way of putting it. So so now, how do how do people resonate with that? When you show it to them, do they get it? Do you have to spend quite a lot of time coaching them through it?
2: I think people get it at an intellectual level, but I think only when they really um, learn some of the and, and and experience a program where they. Um, Asked to think from that multidisciplinary perspective, only then do they actually really get it. Because what I, what I, when I'm working with people, I get them to think about every single task on their project plan. For example, so say they're doing a um, big ERP implementation, and the whole business's um, basic core systems are all being being um, uh, redeveloped or replaced. They, they, like every task on that project plan can be. Um, done from the from that multi-perspective if, if multidisciplinary perspective um, rather than separate so I'll give you an example um, one of the projects I was working on we had to uh, do a selection of a new a new system and it was a government organization and they um, have quite a big uh, tendering process to go out and um, look at different providers for the, for the system. And they usually uh, put together the brief and then of what they're looking for. Well, they do the whole project setup. Then they do the brief of what, what sort of system they want. Then they put out a very detailed um, request for uh, tender and then they um, pull a panel together to review them all and to short, review the shortlists and then select. And then they dispersed the panel. Whereas what we did on the project was we um, got the um, we we got the a lot of the so all the work I do is is co-designed with people. So the mm-hmm. right strategy right up front, you get the people involved right at the beginning. So instead of thinking as a, a tender panel that was going to um, do a business selection of a business vendor, right we thought of it as, well, that's actually a whole broader project process of involving people the whole way through. So in, we, we set up a cross-functional working group representing all parts of the business and all levels, and they – you're smiling, you know what I'm going to get at, right? No, they got the whole that. way through. the whole way through this, and then when it came to – you know, right up front, they did all the strategy bit. They were invested in the systems. They got their information from their divisions, and they represented their divisions. So when it came to uh, – even by the time that the system was was chosen and we needed to start implementing it, it was going to be a very unpopular system, this particular system, um, because it meant people had to change the way they were working significantly. But the change management was built in because yeah. we had all the change champions who actually had selected the system effectively. so. Yeah. The the, the 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 and and, and the culture it just it just fitted the culture and the way they did things with a very um, strong compliance focus. So um, you know, and and th- there was going to be a huge backlash in that in that business um, because yep. they were, it was a divisional siloed business. But we had representation from all different parts of the business. So culturally, the folks felt like they were involved and 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 their division had a say and and the whole um system was implemented really successfully and they saved um uh, in in um, this is an australian government organisation that saved um you know significant millions of dollars uh every year tens of millions um because of it so if the if the team had not had that repre- you know, the program manager that work that just all of that, like the, that the different thinking from those different disciplines, and they would have done it separately. That's where I've seen it fall over and fail. Yeah.
1: So. Yeah. No, hundred percent. The big bang, the big bang failures. Um, you know, and I, I've seen it with people building very, pro- very single discipline, like very strong project managers who very much care about the project plan the, the critical path the the risks the you know the 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 methodology but not about any of the other stuff so th- so they only focus on that stuff and then they, they don't bring anybody else along on the journey and it becomes these weekly meetings of just basically task driven have you done your task have you done your task and yeah. then no one exactly. to me because like, it's just a case of i'm gonna get beaten up because i haven't done my tasks so i haven't logged my time or you know whatever and this is one of the reasons my framework developed was a reminder of why you're doing this all the time and having the people involved in that. Well, while I was smiling when you explained it, it reminded me very much of how um, when I left working on the on the system integrator side and I went to work for a vendor, it was a business process management company called Global 360. And the reason why I was interested in them is that they took what they called the persona approach, which is you'd go and interview the people that were doing the process at the front line about what they did, but you wouldn't just go and interview them like we would do now in a call, you'd literally go to their desk and you'd sit with them while they work in, the, in the day and you'd see how they circumvented their current systems because everyone circumvents the current system. There's always a way around. Yeah. You know, How many times they phone Joe because Joe just gets us through and how many the times they have, All that stuff. And then that's how we would design the replacement. So when we designed the replacement system and they had a very cool um, way of, of building someone's workbench for them, um, where you turn on the widgets you want to have, and you basically create their workbench. That person was part of designing their own their own screen, um, and it was very clunky. And but but the guys who designed the widgets were the same guys as I, who designed the iPhone, so it had the same intuitiveness to it. And your adoption was like 100% because the person would go well, this is you know, instead of me logging into five different systems, I'm logging into one system because all the data was being contextually brought to them because they now designed what they needed. And instead of having 26 buttons to have to click and remember, they had three.
2: Amazing.
1: All the stuff that they needed to do, all the all the sh- shortcuts, we were able to bring in um, through the technology and, and present to them. But they owned the solution. And you know, a lot of that stuff. Uh, there were a lot of good stories. I mean, there was one where they they were processing backlogs of of documents. It was a U.S. I think it was a county sheriff in California. They had this huge backlog of of court documents. And they had like 12 people doing this backlog scanning and they implemented the system and then and they knocked it down to about five people. But they were doing five times the volume of work because they they were the ones that had bought into the system and were therefore efficient. And the seven that hadn't bought in had basically left and they used the money from what they saved to incentivize. It was all gamification based as well. So like how you how yeah. you do other people and, and all that kind of stuff. And they incentivized people that whoever was the top at the end of the year would get a two-week paid two vacation anywhere in the world, five-star, whatever it was. And I mean, I think the trip might have cost 20 grand in those days, 30 grand. But they saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions, just because they got this process efficient and they caught their backlog up. In fact, they were, so, they, they were ahead of the schedule because of the buy-in of the people and because they they had the the, the 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 trust in the system. And the system could be evolved, they could improve the system as things got better, um, which was obviously another thing is they could, they had the ability to to direct how the system got better, not someone in another department who didn't care, which is what you often have in, in, in technology versus the business, because in a lot of businesses versus the business. Yes. You know, they're logging in a support ticket, they're logging in a request, it goes to some black hole in IT, and it never gets delivered. Um, which de- which are demoralizing, and that's where that's, right. that's where shadow IT comes from. Because most businesses go, you know what? I can just go buy a SaaS service now on my credit card. I can have a CRM today. I can pay a consulting firm as a part of that deal on my co- on my corporate card. I don't need to go through IT. And then IT finds out, and then there's the, then there's the, the worst situation where they're trying to bring this thing back in, but it's all on a negative foundation. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah anyway. So that, but,
2: I ask you a question. How how did you learn the importance of the people in the change management? Because a lot of the tech people with a technology background that I talk to, they don't truly think from that kind of in that way. They don't think
1: in that Um, way. Well, it's quite funny. Uh I was talking to my mom mom about this last night. So I've never fitted in like as far as, I, as, as, as my earliest memories go, I, I was always the guy outside. Like any sports team, I, I would be in the sports team, but there would always be a nucleus of people, and I'd always be on the outside, and and I'd always struggled to be to be included or whatever it was. And I think having that situation from from the get go, I've always had to find ways to to fit in. So you know, when I when I started writing code, I loved writing code. It was it was a thing and then and and that was a nice place to go because you could just write code and get instant results. But I found that very as much as I enjoyed it, I also found it very unful- unfulfilling because I, I wanted to know what the user wanted to do.
2: Yeah, like me. Yeah. You
1: know so, that, so that, that, and, yeah. and that and I think it comes back to that thing that, that you know I used to you know in all the sports I played I used to solve all the problems with a solution, and I used to go and tell it to people, and 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 I had a, a coach who used to verbally abuse me um about all the stuff, you know, you, uh, you know, in, in, used to call it shock treatment. <laughs> but I always found that if I could get past him with what I was doing, then I would be on. A, then I would have answered, and and I say he verbally abused me because in, in nowadays we call it verbal abuse. In those days, he was just being hard on me. But I found that if I could get past him, I'd learned how to deal with with the rejections from him. Then he was. then everyone else would just buy it because he would have asked all the tough questions he would have really made me cringe and and, and think and whatever and and he always made a point of, of telling me his stories about how he always pushed himself to be a level above where he was so as much as he would give me crap all the time and abuse me he would also tell me how to how to get around it so I think that kind of set the frame that when I got into the corporate world or where I was when I was selling to customers and dealing with them, i was, I was always I was always prepared for the for those rejections anyway, and I knew how to think of my feet with that sort of stuff. so the 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 technology part was always the easy part, because I'd written the code. I knew how easy the code was. Yeah. yes, I know it's time sometimes to do something, but in reality, there's nothing you can't solve um with with the technology it's more the people that you that you have to get around. And expectation management was one of those things. So I think it's always been there. Um and you know there's there's that energy you get from the people and you can pick up pretty quickly when the energy's wrong. Yeah. And you've and, and it just became more and more that as much as I'm a technologist, the technology goes more and more to the left. You know, it goes 20% of the of the solution. 80% of it is the people part. Yeah. Um, and I and I just it, it became more and more about getting the people to buy in. Getting mm. people to want to do this stuff, um, and and I also you know had a couple you know rough when I was first managing people, a couple of uh, rough instances where you know telling them what to do wasn't the right way to do it. So I so I had to learn that, that the first thing you do is is ask them what they want to do, then you coach them on where you want them to go. And Then the last thing is you tell them what to do. So yeah, kind of, you know, you've got to give them some some rope, but at some point you've got to be, you know, you got to deliver something. So you've got to be. The last thing, but it was just the order of of that, um, and and a lot of military stuff over the years. I've read and and how you know the good militaries don't tell their people what to do; they just tell them what the problem is and ask them how to solve it. Yeah, yeah.
2: well, it's great to hear, you know, and and obviously just stood you in in, in great stead. It, it just made me think of um, you know one South as one South African talking to another when I when I first came to Australia. What I read, I, I went via the U.S. and spent a couple of years there, but. Um, and and there, you know, it's 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 fine to be direct, and the South Africans mm. in of direct way is quite appreciated. But it's not as much appreciated in Australia sometimes, and um, it can be seen <laughs> as quite arrogant. So, uh, you know, that well. telling you kind of, ha- I, I really had to learn how to how to just tone it down and be a bit more patient and a little bit, um, you know, so uh, that was quite, yeah, it just that sort of made me think of when you were saying, no, it's 100% you know, right ask, it. tell last, ask, don't tell, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was my experience I moved to the UK because even even by South African standards, I was considered to be quite, um, um, not passive-aggressive, but, uh I, I didn't dictate even in South Africa. Like, I was very much like, well, what do you want to do? How do you want to do it, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And I got to the UK and they said, no, no, you're way too aggressive, way too direct. And I was like, but I'm not even nearly direct. <laughs> like, uh, by, you know, if you had to have some of the guys I know, you would be crying. Like, if you think <laughs> I'm direct, you know? And I had to really learn that you, and that's why I learned to do the meetings before the meetings. Yeah. And and my my boss, I mean, I was an engineering lead at the time. He used to say, why is your diary so full of meetings? Like, your job is to build stuff. I say, yeah, But I've got to talk to all the people. I That's call them corridor talk-
2: conversations. All the corridor conversations before the yeah.
1: meeting. Yeah. But, but because you're in a global organization, you know, your guys are U.S. Guys are in Asia. So I want to talk to these people. I've got to, to talk to them every, like, multiple times in a week to yeah. to, to get them to trust me enough and vice versa. Uh, and hear all their, you know, hear all their moaning about what we want to do so that I can, when they moan about it, I'm like, okay, you're going to moan about this, you're going to moan about this, this. So here's how we solve that problem. Here's how we solve it. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Okay, fine. Yeah. So by the time you get to the, the big meetings, it everyone was so, not docile, but so on board that the, that the actual meeting was so quick. Like you kind of go, why was that meeting so quick? I said, well, because everyone's already on board. It was just a case of you guys getting to hear that they were yeah. on board. Perfect. Um, and it, it's it, like, it doesn't I always work, it, but it works most of the time.
2: It's like being a cultural chameleon, right? You kind of just... Yeah you 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 figured out how things will work in the culture that you're working in and you know you needed to have those conversations first brilliant you know, I look at,
1: I'll be, and i think the other yeah. thing which, which uh, you know my dad worked for sa back in the good good old days so i traveled a lot um and i think having that exposure to different countries from from an early age i mean i you know my first trip overseas with my dad on my own was hong kong you know you couldn't be more different to south africa um from an exposure point of view and we spent a lot of time in Asia, a lot of time in in, in various European countries. So, you know, as I grew up, I, I saw things and I met people, and I had to learn a little bits of language and nice. a little bit of cultural things. And I think that also helps now that when I speak to someone and they go, "Oh yeah, I'm from, you know, Nimegan in Amsterdam," I'm like, "Oh yeah, we were in, a, I worked there for for six weeks." Oh, where were you? Oh, no, I said, yeah, nice. and so that you um, And I think that's that's an important piece as well is that that to find that way to connect with people. Um, you know, just just to to um, have that little bit of foundation, then you can build on the foundation.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely,
0: definitely.
1: So anyway, nothing about me. <laughs> so to tell me about your your uh, your turbocharge uh, newsletter and all the rest of it. How how has that become your go to market? Like, what what is your what is your thinking behind that?
2: Sure. So uh, when I started. Uh, this year, building the membership, the Turbocharge Your Transformation membership, I have gone. I've sort of had a move from being a basically. I've always marketed B two B, so directly, you know, go go to corporate clients, have a coffee with them. They get to know me. They call me when there's work, and in between gigs, you know, you kind of do a bit more coffee, have a few more coffees, and then you know the, you get the incoming. Calls And that's how I'd fed myself for over 20 years. And uh, what I realized in building a membership like this is I'd have to um, change to fo- to focus also on B2C selling. So selling to individuals who would buy the membership individually rather than selling to a corporate who might buy, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of seats For the membership at a time so they're two quite different markets so the the newsletter is very powerful for for a b2c market particularly if you um connecting with so many people on linkedin and then you know you want to remind them and 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 tell them about what you do and remind them that you're around and um and and you want them to um join up on a, a website directly Right, who they may not have met me and they've got to mm. just kind of go from knowing me a little bit better online and then and then and then clicking on that join now button. So, And it's not a a huge cost, it's it's sort of $99 a month, and they're getting a masterclass, they're getting a a, a PowerPoint uh, playbook of templates that they can use immediately on their projects, and they're getting a group coaching session every month, all um, an hour, and every month a different topic. So it's not a huge sell, but still people don't know me online at all. So what the newsletter does is it helps me build a relationship with those people. So I had already to start about two and a half thousand to three thousand uh, email addresses of people that I have worked with over the years, because in any given year, over 20 plus years, yeah, I'd worked with three or four organizations and I had the email addresses of the people because I love people. So I collect people mm. and I keep yeah, yeah. No, this one, yeah. yeah. So that's how I started at the beginning of the year um, with these two and a half or three thousand names. And then um, and then I've grown them through connecting with people and asking people to send it out to more people and. Uh, yeah, and that and that's how the the the, the newsletter is growing. Um, and I can talk to you more about that if you think the folks would be interested in that. Um, but well, I, think, um, I love writing it. <laughs> yeah,
1: so I think, and I think that's the interesting part for me. So we have a very similar approach. Um, so when I started um, the podcast a couple of years ago. The reason why I started was that I I wanted to write a book and I wrote the book and then I decided that the book just didn't get it across like I wanted it to. So I wrote it again and still couldn't get it across. Um, So I started the podcast because I was tired of putting all these hours into the book and just not getting that, and it's probably imposter syndrome more than anything else. Um, So with, with starting the podcast, we started obviously building some following around that. Uh, and we use LinkedIn as our primary thing. And I, and I realized somewhere along the line that if I did it through LinkedIn all the time, that at some point LinkedIn could change my audience, which I've already done multiple times. And, and I've seen friends that have been blocked and all the rest of it. Um, So that's when I started collecting for the newsletter. But I, I didn't do that. I already had a list of people on the newsletter. I just let it build itself. Um. So I started off with one and then five and then 20 and whatever it was. But that was purely based on the episodes of the podcast going on. Um, but it was for the same the same reason that 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 you were doing it, is to build credibility. So LinkedIn posts, email was all about building credibility. Not just me, but the people we were talking to. So the reason why the podcast existed was, one, for me to meet you people like yourself, and two, to build credibility around what we talked about. And people could then understand, that you know, here's Lisa. She does these things. I can talk to her. That's right. So then, so we tried the com- a community out with um, with Slack. Uh, it didn't work. Um, one, I just find Slack a terrible tool to look at every day? So I didn't, I didn't go in there myself. Um, and two, it just you need people to talk in the group, otherwise it doesn't yes. go anywhere. Yes. Um, so now we're trying again with another product called Circle, um, which is a bit more a community-driven tool. we so- have a similar. Uh, Circle. 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 Okay.
2: Yeah, it's like a yeah, mighty, mighty networks and one of those community yeah. platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Correct,
1: yeah. So we're I, trying out with that. Yeah. So finding
2: yeah.
1: that. trying um, that. I think the tool's okay. Um, But it comes back to the same problem again. People need to talk in them.
0: Yeah.
1: And what we've done initially is we've said that the, the community itself is free to join, but then there's a sub community inside there, which is the value execs community. Which is for the the fractional consultant looking for more fractional work, um, and they get access to the training that we've got. They get access to the product that we've got when that's ready, et cetera. Um, but now I'm thinking that actually the whole community needs to become paid for, and that'll drive you know because we're about, you know we're about 50 members I think give or take um, to to get that going, and we get and we run a, a monthly networking session. Um, So it's similar in some respects to what you're doing.
2: What do they pay? Uh, What do the members pay? uh,
1: Well, so so the main one is free. For the value execs, it starts at about 50 bucks a month. Okay. Um, Pounds. Pounds, yeah. Yeah. And the the crux of value execs is if I get fractional opportunities, that's why I post them. I post them in that paid for group. Right. Um, Because that's, you know, what most people I speak to. uh, And the story behind that is when I was, trying to sell people on the, on the product uh, through my network, most of them are going, yeah, I love the product. We'll definitely give it a go. But how do you do the fractional work? How do you get consulting work? Because I want to transition out of my full-time gig into fractional or I've been doing fractional for a while and I'm really like concerned the market's flat. How do you find work? And, and I mean, the reality is most of what you get fractional-wise is through your network. Yes. But the other part to it, which is what we do with the community, is by being visible. So everyone that joins Value Execs gets, uh, goes on the, comes on the podcast, they go on our YouTube series, um, and then we put them to our partner podcast um, that we have. Podcast, there's, a, there's a few of those. And then we we want to do, uh, and I say want because we're still doing this part, take their content that they are publishing and then republish it. And the idea behind this is based on Ubuntu, which is I am because we are, is to be un- unselfish. And we are getting some of the members putting the, in the opportunities that they're not getting that they can't handle or that they don't want to take on into the group as well to say, "Well, look, I've got this opportunity. I can't do it right now. it's not my skill set, but can somebody else pick this up and it and it builds trust there where they can say, "Look, I can't do this, but here's someone from my community that can help you out." Um, and We had a networking call last week um where two members never met each other before. We, we just basically let them speak because they were just saying like, I do this, I do this. Oh, that's great. That's a synergy. Let's chat. You know, I can help you, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, well, we can just drop off and let you guys just carry on because, you know, it's clearly, it's clearly working uh, for you two to have this chat. And th- th- they've gone off and met separately. And that was, that was the goal of the community it was just to create these connections um, for people to to help each other and, and have this sort of trusted network.
2: Fantastic. Um,
1: yeah. Fantastic. So I think, you know, you know, similar to what you're doing in some respects, building credibility, but uh, for a group.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a nice um, app called, well, it's an app website called Letter Growth. I don't know if you've come across that.
0: No, and not yet.
2: What that is, uh, is uh, a, a platform for newsletter creators to meet other newsletter creators and find cross-promotional opportunities. So oh, in there, there's a whole lot of – so I've just started reaching out to some people in there, and I'm going to use that as a me- – you know, to swap um, promotional opportunities with people at a similar level and with a similar audience. So that's yeah. quite a powerful tool, I think.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that is the trick, is is to, is to grow your audience – But then also to cross-pollinate with somebody else's audience because that's how you get your exposure you you know not that everyone's the same but you want to go into circles where you're not a strong presence um, that's right and and expand it out i mean um i spoke to i don't know if you know lloyd um he was on my podcast recently i mean he's got a i don't remember the numbers now um but a massive newsletter it's in the millions um and he's written a book on on his 13 rules and whatever it is and all the stuff we're doing is kind of in those rules of of growing the the thing. The only thing that, that that he does, which I haven't done yet, is is face to face events, right? Uh, which is what he's doing.
2: Do you have most of your community based in the UK? Um
1: Mar- I've got a couple in the US, uh, mostly Europe, uh, UK, Europe, um, and our, and interestingly enough and I don't want to misspeak on this, but I find it's more, if it's UK-based, the majority are actually immigrants to the UK. And I don't know why that is. It might just be a coincidence. Um, But, you know, if I I think about the majority of of who signed up recently, they've either been foreigners or uh, immigrants.
2: Do you think there's a correlation between people working in the fractional space perhaps or just yeah or maybe uh, because you cuz you you cover a lot of things around sort of starting up working in this kind of way that maybe people are in transit sort of it will just i don't know thinking in their life transit in their life and
1: well yeah. I, I think i think if you if you've immigrated, you you naturally are a hustler cuz you've already had to move out of your home Oh, own. that's
2: so true. That is
1: so and, true. And if and if you're in that mindset, then you're prepared to do not necessarily anything anything you can, but you you're open to more opportunities and more ways of doing things. Um, so you have that drive that um, you know, I, I, I'm not to say people don't have drive when they but I think if you're an immigrant, you have that extra that extra drive. And there is a there's a statistic that some economists put out once upon a time that uh, an immigrant is worth seven jobs. Huh. The amazing and and i always find that interesting because if you look at brexit that's that's the anti yeah anti migrant yeah thing, which which yeah. and you know, the uk is under pressure and it's not surprising um whereas you look at the us i mean most of the successful people are immigrants uh, i mean steve jobs is, is is probably the most successful and his his family are immigrants you know, all the all the big corporates are run by guys from India. You know, yeah, all this, many, yeah,
2: Indian migrants are punching well above their weight in Australia too. Yeah,
1: yeah, but it's because yeah. they because they've taken – they're hustlers and and you know if you I've never been to India but you know you know Durban I mean there's a lot of you learn a lot about Indian culture there they're hustlers they they're prepared to to do it and yeah. uh, so I think to answer your question on the fractional's. I think we're getting I'm getting a lot of that interest because the people that are, are looking for it. Um you get the you get the odd ones that are are at reached the point of their career that they know they won't get another job because they're getting to the age that no one will hire them because of you know, these these um, ar- um archaic and, and uh you know um what do you call it, artificial ceilings that you can't work beyond a certain yeah. age, yeah. etc. Yeah. So they've got no choice but to become a consultant or a fractional. Yeah. Um but then, so so there's still that percentage, but I think the majority are just hustlers looking yeah. looking to, you know, to have multiple income streams and to have um, enjoy do the stuff they enjoy too. I think there's yeah. also that.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely.
1: So, what what are your what's your take on it?
2: No, I think you're right. I hadn't really thought about it to be honest. So. Uh, um, I'm just thinking through some of the folks that I work with. We, we have about 20 uh, consultants in our core Future Builders community in our four, in okay. our core group um, yeah. who work um, who do you know a fair bit of work under the Future Builders banner. There are four of us who are like directors. It's a virtual organization. We set it up 10 years ago. So although I've been independent and I'm doing air quotes here um, for since 99 about 10 years ago we set up the future builders group brand for all of us so we all have our own pty limited businesses underneath that our yeah. own P&Ls, but we combine and have a combined website and we have combined marketing and combined um approaches and values and uh and and collaborate very closely together so uh, yeah and it's it's good fun that way um and uh, it feels I was catching up with some of the, some of the uh, directors today, and we were saying it sort of feels like we've got a bit of a home base, even though yeah, we, you know, still running our own business. So I, I, that's why I encourage people who who working as solopreneurs and and consultants and coaches to find their people, find a community, um, you know, communities like like you've got and and I've got and um and um you know others because. That's that sort of home base is is and that sort of sharing of like leads and gigs when people don't want them and that you could do quite well yourself, you know, that you're quite well suited to, those kinds. And there's there's more of that, more and more of that popping up. And the other thing I I like about it, I suppose, since COVID is this the move to more of a digital learning and being able to learn with other people online. I like the idea of being able to, you know, for people to be able to learn online and uh, and, and learn on an ongoing basis rather than, necess- you know, not only doing one-off courses but have these sort of memberships where they can learn with other people because mm-hmm. – um, and then they've got other people to ask questions, you know, because you've got social learning, which is learning from other peers is such an important part of learning as well. And everything that I read on the and and research on the um, skills based economy, skills based businesses, is that we're just heading in that direction where um, skills are becoming so obsolete so fast, and yep. uh, people just need to to keep up. And the, the the volume, the sheer information overload out there is just massive, and uh, people don't have time to to curate and work out what the most important things are to learn. So um, if communities and memberships can help them do that a bit and um, rather than them randomly doing searches on Google all day to find the things that they need to know. Because um, mm. they've just got all this FOMO, haven't they? I mean, we all do. Like we, we we absorbing content at the rate of knots and then wondering, well, what the hell else are we missing? Um, what don't we know that we should know?
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, so, so it's interesting, So a couple of things you said there. So value execs is very similar to what you have with Future Builders. Future Builders is the right name. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So is that um, your banner, that's the name of your group of all your consultants, is that?
1: Well, that, yeah, so, so, so value execs is the paid or service that that's around the opportunities. And I did foresee at some point you would have like groups or pods of execs going in to help a company. So you might need a, a CRO, right. you might need a CTO, you yeah. might need a whatever a growth person. Um with the um with the training stuff, I mean we we've put some courses together which we sell through the platform as well. But the part that we haven't hit on yet is the master classes. And I was just thinking about that, you know, from a a visibility thing again, um having the master class as uh, do you, and uh, do you put the master class as part of your your community yes. or do you make it a public thing no. and then Okay, interesting. Yeah, I suppose that is the way to do it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um, I think the masterclasses are the most valuable content. So I've got um, you know a fraction of that in the in the newsletters. Uh, I do webinars and on, on other people's communities or podcasts and talk about some of the content, but the most valuable content and the really useful, the really, really useful frameworks are in the masterclasses. And what I do is then I teach people how to use. So t- today's, uh, what's today, Wednesday? Yesterday, sorry, the days are running into each other. So, it's been such a busy week. Yesterday I ran, so every month it's a masterclass and then it's a group coaching session two weeks later. And so this one was, this month was, um, the topic was uh, conquering change clarity. So it's it, it, the core framework is is how do you plan change on a page, which is a lean, agile tool for change planning. And anyone can go and pull off a free template of a Google search, right? But the magic is in how to develop and adjust the framework to suit the culture and the and the particular problem that you're working on, the the, the project or, or product launch or whatever it is. And mm. um and then how to think about the, the yeah, the culture that you're in, how to think from that multidisciplinary perspective and be able to Um, plan for that change in a way that is most effective and going to be successful and how to think of it as that that whole process of bringing people along and co-design. So it's sort of coming from, you're not going to learn it only in a change management workshop. You're not going to learn it only from a project management perspective. You're not going to learn it if you do a design thinking course. You're not going to learn it like if you just come from a single discipline approach. And so not only am I teaching it from that multidisciplinary perspective, but it's valuable because of the people in the community. So the masterclass is mostly um, me and sometimes a colleague teaching the, co- the program for an hour. So we do an hour express, very condensed, lots and lots of information in there. They've they've had the playbook for two weeks before, which is the editable PowerPoint, which has got the frameworks. It's got all the the presentation material, everything in, and it's in a version that they can then adjust and reuse themselves. So if a lot of them are consultants, so they want frameworks like, you know, um, that they can use. So all those, those pages are editable so they can use them and adjust them and make them their own. And then, yeah, and then and then they come to the group coaching session two weeks later, and everybody contributes. And we go into breakout rooms. So if you were coming along with your um, you know um, digital transformation um, expertise, you would be able to contribute from that unique perspective of well, if I was change you know planning a change for digital transformation, this is how I might think of it differently. And so you connect with other people that are um, you know um, in the community. Uh, one, you know, we do, we go we break out into one-on-ones or groups of threes or whatever, depending on the day, and then um, so you meet some of those people, and then also people will send in their problems that they're working on, uh, or the framework that they've applied. Right. So we had one yesterday where somebody wanted to set up a change management function in their business with very fast growing business. And they'd filled out a change plan to launch a change community in-house. And then we all contributed. I used a visual whiteboarding tool and everybody had access to it on the call on the Zoom call. And we all put different post-it notes online. And so that person went away with all sorts of great ideas. So. Yeah, it's sort of a.
1: I love yeah. the model. I'm going to steal it, just to be, just to be honest. Good, um, I, do I that. Think it's uh, great. Um,
2: and I'm hoping so that- we can collaborate further, Ryan, as well, because I really love what you're doing, and um, I love your multidisciplinary approach that you're taking. And I've got so much content; it's coming out of my ears, and I cannot wait to get it out there. So I would love to be able to share. Or maybe
1: that. you're my first. You're my first masterclass. Maybe you just run one of your masterclasses in our group and see how it goes. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, Happy
0: because
1: it, you know, I think there's, there's, you know, one of the things that I wanted out of the community is that there are experts in there. So the experts should come and do their masterclass. I mean, I don't know how how to do it commercially. It might be free to begin with, but well, you free to the members, but at least to start building that that um, that content train, and then build the membership up further and that becomes how it gets commercialized i don't know but that's just me brainstorming with you as we're talking yeah Um, but there's lots of people that have got experience you know guys that have grown businesses they've exited out of of startups that sort of thing which is which is often what i hear about people saying well i've got the startup i want to build it but like how do you how do you build a startup besides just building a product or or, you know how do you go and sell it how do you go and do your pitch decks you know all that sort of knowledge is where, where i'm getting a lot of questions at the moment but there's still on the other side the corporate's going, Well now I've got I've got less people, I need to do more work and we need to solve these problems in the business. Uh-huh. But so you've got Yeah, two different worlds all the time.
2: Yeah, this is interesting, right, because I've got the same dilemma. So a lot of my work over the last couple of years mentoring has not only – well, the majority has actually been in smaller, high-growth businesses, tech businesses, rather than big corporates. And um, so I have another whole set of IP. So I've got this whole – all these playbooks, right? I've carved up what I had into 16 different playbooks playbooks right on yep. 16 different modules that are i've got on you know the, so that there's one every month that's being introduced to the membership so we're up to number five at the moment so if anyone joins they get all five and then they get the new one every month then i've got a whole nother so that's the corporate sort of how do you do a transformation in a corporate then i've got another whole set of tools that i haven't done anything with yet besides use them if my one-on-one like if i'm i'm, I'm you know um mentor CEO of a of a tech firm right and this is on um the whole business model uh from purpose so i've got play purpose strategy uh, go to market um org design uh people and culture uh ec- you know execution all of that all of that and yeah product market fit all of yeah. that. i've got topic those are all topics and yeah I'm'm I'm, I've got all that stuff and I'm I, I can't do it all I'm just like I, but because I'm so excited with it all at the moment I just on like a, a you know a content factory I like I, I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and I have this another idea for a, for a newsletter so I write it down sometimes or sometimes I wake up and then I've forgotten it otherwise so yeah, right, yeah. and so and so what's happened and that's why I'm posting a, a, a newsletter every week because I can't I don't know what to do with all the content I've got. So um, it's the only way, like, otherwise I would have just done it monthly, but I've got all this content. So I want to get it out there because I know, like, you know, you read in the Harvard Business Review last year they had an article, uh, sorry, this year they had an article that um, based on 2022, uh all they had uh, 78% failure of, of transformations. You, you might have seen that one. And then McKinsey on its website consistently, in different places, talks about um, the failure rates they find are about 70% of transformations and strategy execution and all that. And yeah. I know that my success rate is is really, you know, like we've had, yeah, you know, fif- over 50 transformations, two have failed, so that's like 96%. And you know you talk about imposter syndrome it's taken a while for me to actually come out and be able to say that without sounding like a you know um, overinflated ego yeah and and to own it and, but but I do because now i know i know what works and i want to share it with people i really do because all those failures are you know stuff ups of careers um uh, mm. you know um money down the drain um embarrassments um you know people losing their jobs uh you know lost opportunities it's terrible it's terrible i know because when i've had those failures i've you know I, it's taken me you know ages to get over them it's it's awful yeah. you know i had one the one of them i had the, the, basically the, the 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 sponsor was fired of the poll yeah. program the It was the most nightmare project I've ever worked on. The two of the the stars of of his people that were on on the program had both resigned about two weeks before he was fired because it was such a mess. Um, and, And within about six to 12 months after, every single executive on the executive committee that were all actually on our steering committee left yeah. except for one sure and well, uh, it was a it was a, it was an absolute mess and i was the program manager and i felt dreadful i felt so bad like i hadn't you know and hadn't, hadn't done anything
1: i have a similar uh, experience not as not as, as as dire as that in fact mine was the opposite one which i've op, in some respects opposite because No one fell on their sword for it, and they should have. And it was one of those things I'd left a role to join this company, and I'd left early because they were doing this thing, and I was like, "This is my expertise. Like, you cannot do this project without me." So I left early, came and joined them, got involved, and I kept saying to them, "You pick this is you're doing this wrong. You're picking this the picking the wrong technology." This is the right technology you know this is how we have to do it this is the approach and they just ignored it and ignored it and ignored it and we picked the wrong technology we, we put it in the supplier knew it was the wrong technology they told me they knew it was the wrong technology they were they were trying to do things with this tech that they would never be able to do the technology was then bought by the vendor that they were that they should have got gone with and this thing never delivered I, and I ended up resigning and I ended up and I end up sitting with the, the, the head of the business saying to him, you need to pull the plug on this project. You've spent a million pounds or, or whatever it was, mm. in fact, it was my, a million pounds by that point. You're not going to get this money back. The return on value is never going to happen. Like you just got to pull the plug. Yeah. And he's like, he just looked at me and said, I'm retiring in a couple of months. I'm out of here. I don't, I, you know, and I'm not the one that's accountable for this. This person here is accountable. And he's not going to, until he does the right thing, we'll hold it, we'll carry on. And they spent like 12 or 14 million on these things. And they never delivered anything. And the irony is that the business was actually in a very really good space. They, Because they, when you were telling me the story, when I, when I smiled, there's a lot of times when people buy technology, they don't change how they do anything. That's right. It's, you just carry on and they think they, that there's going they, to change. They put it in. It's
2: an installation, not an implementation, is what my <laughs> professor, James Colopio, who taught me when I did my MBA, he always used to describe it as that. And I love that expression.
1: So a, a, yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. And this, the irony with this is that the, the business actually had redesigned everything. They'd taken a shift left approach, they redesigned all their processes. Yeah. The business, Like everyone in the business was bought into this thing. And they ended up spending like 140K to put in something else that met, the, that met the solution. And I was like, yeah, that's what it should have been. It should have been a very simple thing. But it just, it, it went out completely out of control. there was all ego, just flashing. Just mm-hmm. um, and and the, the guy who should have taken the, the fall just refused to admit that he was wrong. And he kept saying like to me, like, have you got this control? I was like, no, this is not a control. This will never be delivered. Mm-hmm. These t- the, the guys are charging yeah. us double because they have to basically write everything custom to fill in the gaps for this technology that could never do it in the first place, you know? So, yeah. So, so I don't know which one's worse: people actually getting fired for a bad implementation or the bad implementation carrying on and people still carrying on roles, getting promoted through the process. I don't know which is worse. Yeah. Uh, Cause they're both bad.
2: Yeah. Well, in the project I described, we never even got to implementation because they, nobody could agree on the strategy. So there you go. No, well,
1: that, So with this thing, they they got rid of the vendor, brought another vendor in. They couldn't do it. So, you know, they paid all these vendors to try and solve this problem, but you yeah. can't solve the problem if the core thing is wrong.
2: No. Um,
1: and the business ended up just getting another little vendor to just do what they needed um, to get them going. But it's just, it, yeah, um, it's it's probably one of the reasons why value exists is because of those sorts of bad decisions. Uh, and people not having a framework to make a decision. They they just use their opinions, um, and I still believe there's a little bit of corruption backhand or whatever it was to get this to go with this vendor because that's the only reason you would have done it that way. I mean, we come from South Africa; we know what corruption looks like it's 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 played in your face. Um, it's not like in the first world where everyone hides it a little bit more um, cleverly, uh, but it still exists. So mm. anyway, um. I don't know if you've got anything else you want to want to chat about or we can end there and you can um, we can pull people to contact you.
2: I think that's a that's probably a good place to to end. Um I'd love it if people contact me, if they've got any questions, if they want to sign up to my newsletter. Shall I um my, my website is uh, our our website is um futurebuildersgroup.com. And if people go to the um, uh, forward slash turbocharge, you can find the information on the turbocharge. All my colleagues are up there. Um, There's a resources section with my newsletter and you can sign up. And um, I'll give you all of that for your show link, show notes as well, Ryan, and yeah, uh, and uh, and the and the, the page that uh, I spoke about as well. And yeah. Um, yeah, look forward to to doing a masterclass for you and some cross promotion and uh, let's get your mainly UK audience and my mostly Aussie audience with some we've got um, some in the UK and some in. Uh, the US and uh, one in Mexico but most of it is in Australia so it would be quite nice to um, yeah do some collaboration
1: yeah I look forward to that we'll, we'll talk about that after this okay, and we'll make a plan awesome sounds good super
0: thank you for listening to today's episode Heather Becknell is our producer and editor thank you Heather for your hard work on this episode Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.